Thank you, Kevin, for leading us in prayer. Hmm. It was a cold winter's morning, and a young soldier, just 18 years old, named Nicholas, stood in his tattered uniform with a fraying blanket wrapped around his shoulders, desperately trying to stay warm. He was fixing his eyes on the carnage of war that was before him. What was once a a peaceful village now had bodies strewn throughout the streets. What was once a place where beautiful buildings and homes were were now now just a, a pile of smoldering ash. And in that moment, as he was taking it all in, he looked down at his red-stained hands and he shuddered and wondered, how did I get here? But he knew, actually, he, he knew quite well how he got there because, you see, Nicholas was born in the year 1611 in eastern France to a very impoverished family. So he knew what it meant to be hungry. And I'm not just talking about the kind of hunger that you experience when you skip a meal like I'm feeling right now because I forgot to have breakfast, but the kind where you don't eat for days. And then when he did finally get something to eat, the portions were so scant that it would barely touch the hunger that burned in his stomach. So you see, Nicholas was an easy target for the French armed forces to recruit because they were engulfed in this time and in that 30 years war and they were going around saying that if you join the army you get three square meals a day and a stipend. So for a 15 year old starving boy that sounded pretty good. So he signed up. Sorry, I'm gonna try to make this be a little less noisy. So Nicholas signed up. And the army was not all it promised to be. Not surprisingly, the recruiters kind of stretched the truth a little bit about the whole three square meals a day and stipend thing. In fact, the French government demanded that their soldiers get their food by looting the villages that they attacked. So Nicholas found himself ravaging through cupboards of families he had just wiped out. Oh, he was so tired in that moment of war and fighting. And he was longing, hungering for something else in his life. And as he was feeling that longing for something else, he he turned his gaze away from the carnage before him and, and he looked off in the distance and he saw a tree. It was wintertime, remember, so the tree was bare. But he began to look at that tree for a while and think about how spring was soon gonna come. And when spring would come, there would be revival and new life to that tree. It would transform. And as he began to gaze at that tree and and think about what spring would bring, he began to have this overwhelming sense of hope about his own life. And he thought, maybe, maybe God could do something like that in my life. Maybe if I finally give him full control, if I let him into my life, if I commit myself to him, then God could take the barrenness of my life and turn it into something abundant and fruitful. So right there in the midst of it all, Nicholas gave his heart to the Lord. Well, not longer after his conversion experience, Nicholas suffered a devastating injury in battle 
but it was somewhat of a blessing in disguise because the French army discharged him. They had no longer need for his services. He was no longer used to them. So after he was discharged from the army, he still had that deep longing to experience something greater with God. And because of that, it led him to join this religious order known as the Carmelite community. He joined just as a layman, and his name was changed from Nicholas to Brother Lawrence from that moment on. In a cold, dark cave stood another young soldier, his name David. And I imagine as David was standing in that cave that he was up close to the fire, also desperately trying to stay warm. David had been on the run. He had been going from cave to cave, constantly in hiding. And I wonder, as he stood there by the fire trying to warm himself, did he also have the same thought as Brother Lawrence? How did I get here? He was, after all, the person who at just 16 years of age slayed the giant Goliath, gave that great victory to Israel. In fact, he had many great victories at this point in his life that he provided for the kingdom of Israel. He was chief commander of Saul's army. How could once the greatest war hero Israel had ever known now be the most wanted man in the kingdom? Well, it started subtle at first. Him and King Saul came back from a great victory again, and you may remember the story. They come into the streets of the city, and they're surrounded by all these women who start to sing this song. Saul has killed his thousands. And you can just picture, can't you, that King Saul is standing tall in his chariot with this proud smile on his face as he is hearing that being sung. Then you can also picture, can't you, that that smile quickly turns to a scowl as he hears the next line. But David has killed his ten thousands. From that point on, this root of jealousy starts to grow in Saul, a, a root of jealousy that grows into hatred, that grows into outright rage as we saw evidence when he tries to impale David with his spear. And so now David has to live his life on the run, wilderness to wilderness, cave to cave, trying to survive Saul's pursuit on his life. And of course, there would have been other soldiers that were with David that were loyal to him. They would have been on the run too, having to go from cave to cave, wilderness to wilderness. And my suspicion is that in order for all of those soldiers to survive, they may have had to do some of the same things Brother Lawrence had to do when he was in the army, find their food, means of survival by looting villages. And I wonder if as David stood there by the fire and and looked at his men and thought about all the the horrific things they had been through that they had to do, and if as he looked down at his own war-torn hands, did he also shudder? I know at least that there was a deep longing in his heart like Brother Lawrence, a longing for something else in the midst of it all, We know that because we read so many of his psalms where he expresses that deep yearning for something more. And I can just picture David in those moments where he's thinking about all the enemies that are surrounded him, that all that he has gone through, and and wanting just that, 
to that longing that he has in his heart, I imagine him reaching out and behind him and, and grabbing his harp to play. You know, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart, but I also like to think that in some way, David was a man after my own heart because that would have been the closest thing to a guitar back then. That's what I would have wanted to play. I imagine he grabbed what would have been like his guitar, his harp. No offense to you harpists today. Because there was nothing that soothed his soul like that. And I just imagine as he started to pluck the strings of his harp, he would begin to sing words to God about what he was longing for. Words like we find in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. He will set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Wow, such confident words from David. Some echoes of what we talked about last week from Psalms chapter 3. But I also read such tender words in there because he expresses his longing. Did you catch it? Did you see what it was that David was longing for? He just asked for one thing and one thing alone. I just ask one thing of you, God, he said, this one thing do I seek. I wonder if you could ask God for just one thing, you had to only pick one thing, what would you ask? What would it be, the one thing that you would ask of God? Would it be health? Would it be wealth? Would it be wisdom? Would it be peace? Well, there's so many things so many options about what to ask. What would be the one thing you would ask? I'm in my mind remembering those moments, those special occasions when we go to the store and we tell the girls, hey, uh, you know, something special just for today. You can pick one toy for us to buy for you. Any parents, grandparents ever done that? Any of you, after you've done that, spent like two hours in the store because it takes forever for them to just pick one. It's so hard. How can I just pick one? What would be the one thing you would ask God? And that word ask is not a strong representation of what the original language was trying to communicate. It would, better to it would be better to interpret it more like 
plead or even beg. David's like, I am begging you, God, for this one thing. Sometimes that happens too in those you know, special times we say you can pick one thing and then they pick something that is way over mommy and daddy's budget and they say, please, can I have it? I just want this one thing. David is begging for this one thing. I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Hmm. Boy, if I were in David's sandals, I don't know if that would be the one thing I would have asked for. I would have probably started off the same way. Lord, you are my light. You are my salvation. Thank you. I'm confident in you. But there's just one thing I would like to ask. Could you please just take care of King Saul already? That would just be the one thing that would really make my life so much easier, you know? He's not really doing so hot lately. I've already been anointed. Come on, Lord, let's make this transition already. We can let him go peacefully. I'll leave it in your hands. Just please, that one thing, can you, can you deal with that? Or at the very least, Lord, can you give us a respite from the running, from the fighting? My men, they miss their families. Can you just give them a few days? That would be the one thing I would ask, just a few days at home with their families. Boy, there's a lot of one things, if I was in David's position, that I think I would have asked for. But David doesn't ask for any of that. He just says, I want to seek your face. I want to see your beauty. God, just want to dwell in your house. I think what David is saying is, I don't care what situation I'm in. I don't care what's happening around me. I know it will all be okay if I can just have this one thing, your presence. That's all I need. Now, as David here talks about longing to live every moment of every day in the house of God, you cannot miss the illusion that he's clearly making. David is talking about living in the Old Testament sanctuary. And that makes sense because that was where God's presence resided. That's where it was considered to be, in the temple. But it's also interesting because in this time of David, there may have been some confusion as to where exactly God's presence is residing. You may remember when the Israelites first conquered the Canaanites, Joshua put the sanctuary in Shiloh and it stayed there for about 300 years. But now as we get into David's time in, verse, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, there's this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And you remember what happened? The Philistines run off with the ark of God. They steal it out of the sanctuary, walk off with it. The ark of God is the very thing that represented God's throne. So where is God now? Is he still in the sanctuary back in Shiloh or is he in the land of the Philistines with the ark? And then something crazy happens if you keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 5. After having the ark for several months, God smites the Philistines with hemorrhoids. I'm not kidding. Some of you were dozing off in the sermon and you heard the word hemorrhoids and you're like, well, this is getting interesting. I got to pay attention. No, I'm not joking. Read the Bible. Talks about these tumors and the language implies that these tumors were in a particular location. And so the Philistines are like, we don't want this thing anymore. Can you blame them? 
And they put it on this card and they send it back to Israel. But when they send the ark back to Israel, the sanctuary has actually been moved now. It's no longer in Shiloh. Now it's in this place called Nob. And they don't even return the ark to the sanctuary in Nob. Rather, they take it to Kirath-Jerim to this place in the house of Abinadab. So where's God's presence now? Is it in the sanctuary in Nob now? Or is it in the house of Abinadab with the ark? So when David says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, I wonder if he's wondering, where is that place, Lord? Are you dwelling in the sanctuary or where the ark is? Isn't it good news, family, that you and I don't have to have any confusion as to where God's presence is today? We know that when we answer his knocking on the doors of our hearts and we let him in, we know that he is living in us, in you, in me, in his, through his Holy Spirit. There's no confusion about where God is. And I don't think there was any confusion on David's part either. I think he understood that he could find God in his temple. There is a special experience in the presence of Lord, in the, in the presence of the, experience in the presence of the Lord in his holy temple. But I also thought about the words that David wrote in Psalms 139, verse 7, where he said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David knows God's presence is in his holy temple, but he also knows that his presence is everywhere else. Where can I go <laughs> that you are not there, God? Even in the places of darkness, especially in those places. And you can just tell by the language of Psalms 27 when he says, I just want to gaze, behold your beauty. I just want to seek your face that all that matters to David is that he is where God is. And all this that I was reading through and studying this week got me thinking. In fact, it got me asking myself a couple questions. The first one was, when I go into those sacred spaces, those sacred activities or moments, when, in other words, like I come to church and I sing praise songs or when I open my Bible to study it, when I go to my knees to pray, all those things that Gail mentioned in her children's story, where we find God, we do. Do I have that singular purpose in mind in those sacred moments and spaces? Am I just seeking that one thing to gaze on the beauty of God, seek his face? I love church. I love that we are able to gather in this place to worship together in fellowship. I love coming to church. I've always loved coming to church, even as a young kid. I love God's word. It is so powerful. I mean, you can tell for some reason. Well, I know the reason. The word is powerful. And, and as I've read it today, I have just gotten choked up because it is so 
powerful to read the words of Scripture. Prayer is also powerful. Been such a comfort, such a healing thing in my life and I know in yours. But I have to remember, none of those things are an end in and of themselves. They are all a means to seek and connect with our Creator. In fact, the words, the, the, the criticism that Jesus gave to the Pharisees comes to my mind in this moment. In John chapter 5, verse 39, where he says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You know, it is possible to read the scriptures and completely miss the person the scriptures are all about. God's word is powerful. It has transformed my life, but it is not a end in and of itself. It has transformed my life because of the times when I have allowed it to be a means to connect with the one who wrote it. It's possible to fall into the same trap when we come to church, when we have our prayer life, when we do a Sabbath school class. Unless, like David, we come to all those sacred moments with one thing in mind, to seek his presence gaze on the beauty of our God. But God's presence is not just in the sacred spaces like the temple. Remember, where can I go, Lord, that you aren't there? Isn't that good news? So it made me ask myself another question. Well, what about all those quote-unquote secular moments, secular spaces, secular activities? Do I also have that one thing in mind when I engage in those? moments. Brother Lawrence especially understood that you could be in the presence of God no matter where you were or what you were doing. After he joined that religious order, the Carmelites, do you want to know what his job was? He was a kitchen worker. Maybe some of you have read his book. For 25 years, he worked doing mundane jobs in the kitchen, peeling potatoes, rolling dough, serving food, rubbing caked-on grease out of pots. But for 25 years, Brother Lawrence made a commitment that he would do all of that with God. And so he would do these things that as he was peeling potatoes, he formed a habit of conversing constantly with God. As he was scrubbing out that caked-on grease, he would sing praises. As he served meals, he saw it as an opportunity to spread God's love. Everything he, he thought was, was around the idea of God's love and how that could be more manifested in his life and in others' lives. Everything he did was with God in his presence, made God a part of it invited him to be a part of it. And as you can imagine, this made Brother Lawrence's attitude and life just so much different than everybody else that worked around him there in the kitchen. He had this joy and this peace and this fulfillment about him, and people started to notice. In fact, um, people started to wonder, how in the world is this guy so happy and, and enjoying life just doing this kitchen work? 
People begin to write him letters because his reputation spread and asking him how he found such a life. They would come visit him and interview him. In fact, even some of the church's top dignitaries and bishops came to see this man who somehow was able to experience the presence of God wherever he was and in whatever he was doing. And there was one particular person that came to interview Brother Lawrence. His name was Abbot Buford. And Buford was so inspired by what he saw in Brother Lawrence's life, his commitment to be in the presence of God. He's decided to take all the notes from his interviews and some of the private letters from Brother Lawrence and publish a book after Brother Lawrence died. It's a book that John Wesley and A.W. Tozer said, every person should have this book in their library. It's just a tiny book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in that little book, Buford lays out some of the incredible discoveries that Brother Lawrence made, like how you can peel potatoes or scrub grease, caked on grease off of pots while talking with God, while praying with him, while connecting with him. And you know, family, something cool happens in your life when you start to live like that. Those mundane tasks become sacred moments. Those everyday chores become packed with meaning because God is a part of it. Even the dark moments are bursting with light because we find God there with us. We can still see his beauty in the midst of it because he's right there with you. And before you know it, every space, every moment, every activity in your life is sacred because God is in the midst of it. Oh, what would be the one thing? <laughs> what would be the one thing that you would ask God for? My appeal to you is that the one thing that you would ask for is the one thing that changes everything, his presence. Make that be the one thing you seek in every space, every activity, every moment of your life. Flood 
presence in our lives. May it be truly the one thing that we seek. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> 